Let's pray together. Our Father, we come now to you in the best of days and the worst of days. What we need is from you, a vision of you. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Your word is what gives us life, and it gives us life by pointing us to Christ. O Lord, a thousand years and a thousand tongues would not be enough to sing or to speak of your praise. How much less than one tongue in half an hour. And yet I pray now and ask for the help of the Holy Spirit that we might rightly see the supremacy and excellency and greatness, the priority and place, the preeminence of Jesus Christ over and above all things, that in the landscape of our minds, in the horizon of our eyes, Christ would fill all and be so big and huge that we would see everything else rightly, that in seeing him, everything else would be ordered correctly. So we pray that he would occupy the place of first and foremost in every heart and life today. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Everyone has a God. Everyone has a God. From those of us that would consider ourselves to be religious, to those of us in the room who would consider ourselves to be the furthest thing from religious, and every one of us in between all of that somewhere, Every one of us has a God. The reality is that all of us have a God that we believe in and that we worship in. In fact, if I could push it even further and be even a bit more provocative, I would say to you, the question is not really even do you believe in God, but rather which God do you believe in? Because every one of us believes in a God and has a God and worships. or whatever that thing is that gives you identity. Sort of, this is what I'm about. This is what, who I am. This is why I'm here. Whatever it is, that's something that gives you purpose and meaning and identity and security. That is your God. Every one of us has something that we supremely value. In fact, one author has said, your God is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would hardly feel worth living. Hear that again. Anything in your life that is central and essential so that should you lose it, your life would hardly feel like it's worth living. Everyone has a God. It's just a question of what it is. And in fact, if you were to let your guard down and let some honest questions come your way and and assess them, you might even be able to discover that which is your God. For example, a question like, what is your greatest dream? But what, what would be your greatest dream? Almost to the point of, if you had to fill in the sentence, if I could just have blank, then my life would be complete and satisfied and whole and full and, and everything would be perfect. If I could just have blank. Or, or if you flipped it and asked the inverse, the opposite, which is, what's your worst nightmare? So that if you asked your soul, if I didn't have blank, 
If, if blank wasn't mine, then my life would feel like it's not worth living. I wouldn't even know if there's a reason to go on. Well, whatever fills in the blank for you, I want you to hear, is your God. That's, that's what you ultimately value. That's what you ultimately want. And when you start to begin to think that way, I want you to hear the list of potential gods is almost endless. Right? There's, there's an endless number of options that can fill in the blank to those questions. An endless number of options of what your God might be. For some of us, that blank is success. If I could just get this degree or that promotion or that title after my name, then my life would be complete. And if I don't get that degree, that recognition, that place, that promotion, then I'm not even sure what I'm doing. For some of us, that God would be status. For some of us, the name of that God would be comfort. For some of us, it would be fame or recognition. For others of us, it's sex or it's family or it's children. As you might be able to imagine by now, there is no shortage of things to fill in the blank. No shortage of gods that we can center our lives around, worship, trust in, and live for. John Calvin, the reformer, is famous for having said that the human heart is a factory for idols, right? Meaning that in the inner corridors of your being, the very essence of your heart, there's sort of this assembly line which is constantly churning out one God after another for you to build your life on. One counterfeit thing after another for you to build your entire being on. You'll notice in the list of things that we said also that not all these gods are even bad. In fact, some of them are good. Your kids are good. And the question becomes, is this good thing big enough to be a God thing? Right? That, that's the question. Is your God, and you have one, qualified to be your God? Is your lowercase g God qualified to be your capital G God? That's the question. Not do you have a God, but rather is the God that you have and that you worship and that you have built your life on and that you trust, is that God qualified to be your capital G God? Can that thing that you are right now building your life on handle the strain of your entire life? Can it bear up under the weight of all your hopes and all your dreams and all your expectations and all the weight that you're putting on it. For example, if you're building your life around success, what happens to your life when you meet failure? Or if you're building your life around acceptance, human approval, what happens to your world when you get rejected or betrayed? If you're building your life around this endless pursuit of comfort, more ease. What happens in the day of difficulty and sorrow and suffering when you meet with pain? Or if you're building your life around some kind of relationship, a, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a spouse, a significant other, a parent, a child. If you're building your life around some other relationship, what happens when they leave you or they fail you or they die as we all will? Amidst the pantheon of possibilities then, amidst the endless myriad of candidates that can serve in that blank, 
Colossians 1, verses 15 to 20, presents one who stands head and shoulders above everyone else. One being, one person, who alone is qualified, who alone is without equal, who alone has no rival, no competitor, no helper, no one sharing the stage. One person who is peerless, matchless, and preeminent, which is the word you're going to hear in the text again and again. This one person who is preeminent, that is that Colossians 1, 15 to 20, is going to argue that in a sea of fakes and phonies and frauds, there is one person and one alone who can bear the weight of being your God. And that is the man, Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone amidst all the possibilities, can be the only one qualified to, fit to, who can bear the weight of being your God. Now we looked at verses 15 through 17 last week as Paul was literally singing the praises of Jesus. And we say literally because we we think that that section from 15 to 20 is a hymn. Either one that Paul wrote himself or that one he was quoting from someone else. But either way, he's literally singing the praises of Jesus. And in 15 through 17, we already heard him sort of rattle off some of the bullet points of Jesus' resume. You want to know if Jesus is fit, qualified. Jesus' resume starts with, in 15, he is the image of the invisible God. And then the next bullet point on the resume goes on. He is the firstborn that is over and above all creation. It goes on. He's the one by whom and through whom and for whom all things were made. Whether in heaven or on earth, all things were made by him and through him and for him. And if all of that were not enough to convince us that he alone is peerless, that He alone is preeminent, that He alone is qualified, that He alone is supreme and sufficient to be our God, then Paul has one more stanza for us, which is what we're looking at in verses 18 to 20, the sort of second stanza of this hymn. Hear it with me. You heard it once as Keith read it for us. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. Don't miss a word of that. right? Don't miss a word of that. In fact, hear it again explicitly. Let's connect this to Jesus And and hear what he's saying. And Jesus is the head of the body, the church. Jesus is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything Jesus might be preeminent. For in Jesus all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through Jesus to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of Jesus' cross. That's what Paul's saying. Now here's what Paul does. What Paul does is he shifts sort of it from stanza one to stanza two, from talking about the supremacy of Jesus over and above all creation, to now narrowing it to say the supremacy of Jesus over and above salvation. 
right? Almost the categories, Jesus' supremacy over and above all things, cosmically, over the entire universe as its creator. And now, narrowing it down even to say, and his supremacy over and above all things, even as the world's savior, as the one who is head and over and above all of salvation. You can see this switch in that Paul sort of starts to talk now about Jesus' people, the church, right? In verse 18, after saying that he's made all things, heaven on earth, thrones and powers, authorities, everything by him, through him, for him. And now verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church. That is that even as Jesus is supreme and superior and over and above all creation and all people generally, so he is also supreme over and above his people specifically. Over all creation, yes, and over his church, yes. He is the head of his body, the church. I want you to hear that. Jesus, not a pope, not a priest, not a pastor, but Jesus Christ is the head of his body, the church. And this, we don't mean this like the Queen of England, some kind of figurehead title, right? We carry about our daily activities, we run things here, and every now and then we nod our head to sort of the Queen, the, the figurehead. No, Jesus in everything, all that we do, in every bit of it, is head of his body, the church. That when we gather, we gather around Jesus. When we sing, we sing about Jesus. When we pray, we pray through Jesus. When we preach, we preach Jesus. In all things, the content, the sum, the direction, all of it is about Jesus because he is the head of his body, the church. And I want you to hear even the, the, the relationship you and I enjoy with Jesus as his church is even more great and more specific than the relationship all of creation has with him. Right? It, it, all of creation, the beasts of the field and the birds of the air and the fish of the sea and all people everywhere can look to Jesus as their maker. Yes. But the church, you and I who have trusted in Christ, who are now in Christ, can even look to him as the head of our own body. That's the kind of connection you have with this God. A God who is not like the other small g gods. Money can't say to you, I'm your head, you're my body that we're connected in that kind of way. But this God has made himself so close with his people that he could be described as our head and we his body. So connected to us that when this man Paul, who once was a man named Saul, who hated and killed Christians, Jesus showed up to him and he said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Now Saul is killing the church. And yet Jesus has so connected that that you can't kill my arm without it affecting the head. So that Jesus says, when you are killing the church, when you are persecuting the church, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Saul says, who are you, Lord? And he says, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. So is the connection that this God now says that he has with his people. And even as the head is the one that directs the entire body, that controls where it goes and what it does, so Jesus the head is the one who controls, directs the body of his, the church. He is preeminent in all things. What Paul is starting to say in verses 18 to 20 is not only Jesus supreme over and above all creation, but that Jesus is supreme over and above all of the new creation also. 
He, he's not just supreme, superior, preeminent over all creation. He is preeminent over new creation as well. Now, why, what am I saying by new creation? What, what, what does that phrase mean? Well, the story of the Bible is what? What we started saying already. That in the beginning, through Jesus, all things were made. Made through Him and by Him and for Him. The stars in the sky, the planets in their orbit, from the, the greatest planet down to the smallest molecule, all things were made for Jesus. To point to Jesus, to exist for the glory of Jesus. But as the storyline of the Bible continues, you find that sin enters into the world. Sin is essentially our belittling of Him, our refusing to acknowledge Him for who He is, our rebellion against Him, our treason against our King and God. And when sin enters the world, everything is now distorted and fractured and broken and torn. Everything is, is done away with. Everything that was right and good becomes wrong and bad. Right? Suddenly, sin enters into everything and fractures everything. So, whereas in creation you had food, now you have gluttony. Whereas you had wine, now you have alcoholism. Whereas you had sex, now you have lust. Whereas there were mountains, now there are deadly earthquakes. Where there are oceans, now there are tsunamis. Where there are relationships, now there is discord and strife. Where there was life, now there is death. Sin has fractured everything. And yet the message of Christianity is that Jesus Christ stepped into this mess, into this world that sin had made a muck of and messed up, and his mission was to undo all that sin had done. He came to initiate a new world, a new people, a new era, a new creation. Right? This is why in Corinthians, Paul will say, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. That is, my entire life under that old world, dominated, ruled by sin and by my own agenda, is now replaced because there's a new realm, a new era, a new day, a new creation. And Paul is saying, Jesus is the head of not just creation, but supreme over all of new creation. And if you ask, how did he bring about this new creation? It's with what Paul says next. It's that he is the head of all this because he is the firstborn of the dead. Do you notice that in verse 18? Consider that. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So the question you've got to ask yourself is, as Paul is now trying to push Jesus forward, as not just supreme over all creation, but supreme over new creation. And we wonder, how did this new creation begin? Paul says, because he's the beginning of all this, he is the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So, how does Jesus' resurrection connect to him being the beginning and being in everything preeminent? That's what we want to consider. How does Jesus' resurrection tie to him being preeminent over all things and the beginning of this new resurrection, this new era, this new creation? Well, here's what I want you to do. Consider resurrection for a second. Even the Jewish people, the Jews, had believed that one day resurrection would come. And here's how they believed it. 
What they thought was, there will be finally at the end a general resurrection of all God's people. And when that glorious day comes, it will mean that Yahweh has established finally His kingdom on the earth. He rules and He reigns. And sin has been done away with. And injustice is gone. And there's no more oppressors of God's people. No one's in exile, driven away from God. Everything has been restored in the general final revelation of God's people. In fact, there was a prophecy that sort of gave you a lens of how they viewed resurrection. The prophet Ezekiel in chapter 37 has this vision. And the vision that he sees is this valley filled with dry, dead bones. Right? It's sort of a picture of Israel driven out and done. This valley of millions of dry bones. And in this vision, God says to the prophet that he's to speak, he's to prophesy. And as breath goes from his mouth and the power of God's wind and spirit comes about, suddenly these dry bones start to rattle in that, in that valley. They start to rattle and they start to move and suddenly bone starts connecting with bone and, and hip bone connects with thigh bone and suddenly you've got this skeleton that starts to form. And then as the power goes about and the prophecy goes about and God's spirit goes about, suddenly onto this sort of vast number of skeletons suddenly comes flesh and tendons and ligaments and then skin covers them and now you've got this vast number of beings and breath comes into them so much so that this army comes to life and it's this vision of this is what God is going to do God is going to gather again his people and he's going to give them resurrection life and the hope was that the day is coming when Yahweh would finally be king on the earth sin would be done away with God's people would be restored there would be resurrection no more injustice it's coming in that last final future glorious day and here's the shocking, unbelievable message of Christianity. Because Christianity bursts into the scene and says that that final day, that future era that we're all waiting for, has become, begun now because Jesus rose from the dead. Hear that again and don't miss that. That final, future, glorious day that everyone is waiting for has already begun because Jesus Christ rose from the dead. The day that we thought was going to happen with the resurrection of all people at the end of history began with the resurrection of one man in the middle of history. That final day that you thought was going to happen when everyone rose again at the end started and began now. Why? Because Jesus is the beginning. He is the firstborn of the dead. Resurrection started when Jesus rose from the dead. That final future day you're hoping for, longing for, has begun in one person. That in everything, he might be preeminent. That what you were hoping would come at the end started now just because one man rose from the dead. That in everything, he might be preeminent. So this future day, this final era has begun. He is the beginning because he is the firstborn of the dead. right? And, and if you begin to think of that, how do we make sense of this future day and that glorious reality is sort of here but not yet fully here. It's come and yet it's coming. It's arrived and it's still arriving. How do you, how do you make sense of that? It's sort of like this. If you've ever thrown a surprise party, right? You've got a room full of people and they're in there and everybody's eating chips and drinking drinks and everyone's talking and chatting it up and having a good time. And while they're doing all that, one person is nervously at the window doing what? Constantly looking through the blinds, right? Constantly looking out. 
And everybody's talking and everybody's chatting and everyone's drinking and enjoying themselves and one person's looking. And that continues until what happens? The lookout looks and sees that the car is pulled up at the top of the driveway, turns around and announces, he's here. And when he says he's here, everything in the room changes, right? Suddenly everyone starts going, shh, shh, shh. And everyone shushes one another, and everyone tells everyone to quiet down, and everyone puts away their drinks, and everyone is poised, because now he's here. Now, is he here? Yes, he's here, but he's not yet really fully here. He's come, and he's coming. He's arrived, and he's arriving. He's at the top of the driveway, and that changes everything about here and now. And, and while you wait for him to come, even though he's here, he's coming, and then you know he's going to throw open the door, and then pandemonium's going to go, and joy is going to happen, and everything that you had hoped for will finally be fully here. Paul is saying, Jesus is at the top of the driveway. By his resurrection, it's here, and it's coming. It's arrived, and it's arriving. Jesus Christ has ushered in the era of the new creation, the era when sin no longer dominates, when death no longer has the final word. That era has begun because Jesus Christ is the firstborn from the dead. Don't you see, whether you're talking about creation, how this all got started, or recreation, new creation, how it all got restarted, you can't have the conversation without Jesus that in everything he might be preeminent. That's the point. You, you can't talk about creation without talking about Jesus. All things were made by him and through him and for him. But you can't talk about new creation without Jesus because this era began in him. He is the firstborn from the dead. Oh, Sabah Road, when you hear that, doesn't your lowercase g seem so puny compared to that? I mean, you're talking creation and new creation. You're talking heavens and earth. You're talking the end of all things, the resurrection of the dead, the elimination of sin and death and disease. You're talking all of that. Doesn't sex feel a little bit small? Doesn't your promotion feel a little bit small compared to all that? Don't you begin to feel the weight of, he, he's right. There is only one who is fit and qualified supreme, superior, over and above all things to fill the landscape of our lives as our only God. And Paul's saying here, look, if, if that's not enough to convince you, if the bullet points on the resume weren't enough yet, all things were made by him and through him and for him. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the head of his body, the church. He is the firstborn from the dead. If that's still not enough, well, he goes on in verse 19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. All this is not enough? Okay, then consider this. He might be preeminent in everything, for in him, here's another ground for his preeminence. Here's another reason for it. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Now, why is that important? Commentators tell us that the Colossians were living near and around a day when people were beginning to be told that there is one God, but he has sort of made himself known in lots of different emanations. Lots of sort of little deities, lots of sort of representations, lots of little incarnations. And so the idea was, you might have one true God up in the sky, sure, but that he has made himself known in lots of different incarnations, lots of different emanations, lots of different entities. And you had to go through these various channels to get to the one true God. So you had to respect this realm of all these middlemen, these, these lower level entities, so that you could get through them to the one true God. 
Now, I want you to hear, they would have probably patronized you and said, you know, Christmas is very important because Christmas is the incarnation of Jesus of Nazareth, and you can be sure that he is one of those emanations, one of those incarnations, one of those deities. And, and God in heaven has sort of spliced himself up among all these, and when you gather all of them together, you have a true picture of the full God. You get that? You need all of them because he sliced himself up into all these different representatives. And when you get them all together, you get the full picture of God. Now, I'm talking about Colossae then, but I want you to know that's not far-fetched or distant from us now. In fact, I'll tell you, three weeks ago, I was in the gym and I was talking to a man who, who I think I had stolen his machine without knowing, and so he kindly, he's much bigger than I am, told me to get off, and I, of course, got off. And so we started talking, and he told me that he was a Hindu. I told him about my Christian faith, and so we start talking. Now I'm riding the bike, and I'm next to him. I'm bad at evangelism to begin with, and that's not modesty. I'm terrible at it. I'm always praying about it. And so now, on top of that, I'm riding a bike, and I'm like sucking wind, trying to, like, Jesus is... It, like the most horrible, embarrassing scene, but I'm trying to tell him about Jesus. And we've got all this conversation, and the conversation is fine. We can talk about the world, conversation's fine. We can talk about religion, conversation's fine. We can talk about morality and ethics and the kind of people that our religions produce, conversation's going. And then we hit an impasse. We hit a block that we couldn't get past. Right? Conversation's going fine. And then we got to one thing that we couldn't get beyond. We got to Jesus. Because what he told me was that in Hinduism, and, and I'd heard this before, Hinduism is not a polytheistic religion, he told me. People think there's 330 million gods. No. He said there's one God who has expressed himself in 330 million, perhaps, deities. And, and all of that together is who the true God is. These are all avatars. And then he told me, and Jesus of Nazareth is one of those avatars. And the conversation hit a dead wall. He told me what the Colossians were being told. And so I told him what Paul told the Colossians. In Jesus, all the fullness of God has been pleased to dwell. Right? We hit a stumbling block. We hit a road because I'm saying to you, Jesus is not sharing divinity with a bunch of others. That all that is God was pleased to dwell in Jesus. All of God squeezed into him and into no one else. There is no other middleman. Jesus doesn't share this stage with anyone else because all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him. Christmas was not the incarnation of an avatar. It was the incarnation of the only image of the invisible God. In everything, he has to be preeminent. He's not sharing God with anyone else. All the fullness of God dwells in him. When, do you want God, capital G? Then you need Jesus. He's preeminent in everything. He, all, all the fullness of God dwells in him. And Paul ends in verse 20 by saying, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Paul ends this section by saying, almost, you know, at Christmas, in his incarnation, Jesus is preeminent because all the fullness of God was pleased in him to dwell. And in Easter, at his resurrection, Jesus is preeminent because he is the firstborn of the dead. He is the beginning. But in between Christmas and Easter, in between his incarnation and his resurrection, is Good Friday. 
whereby he accomplished reconciliation. Right? In between incarnation and resurrection is his work for reconciliation. In between Christmas and his preeminence there, and Easter and his preeminence there, is Good Friday and his preeminence there, because he says, and through him God was pleased to reconcile all things, whether in heaven or on earth, making peace by the blood of his cross. That Jesus, who was fully God, came, and by his blood shed on that cross, he has reconciled all things to God. Now, undoubtedly, all of us have known the pain of relational strife. Right? Every one of us can relate to that. All of us have experienced the pain of relational discord. Right? You, you think about a broken relationship with a parent or with a child. You think about a, an estranged relationship with a dear friend that no longer is. A sibling. You think about the brokenness in a relationship with a spouse or a family member. In, in all of that, all of us have known how awful it is to live in that state of conflict. Right? You get into a fight with this person, that ruins your day. You know what it's like to live in a state of conflict. And yet the Bible is saying that is our state with God. We live at conflict with Him, estranged from Him, separated from Him. That there's an issue between us and God, and the issue is us and our sin. And you know in your relationships, if there's ever going to be a bridge back, it's because both of you are going to have to somehow come together, deal with the issue, and work towards reconciliation. Well, here, we're the issue. Our sin is the issue, and yet it pleased God to move towards us in reconciliation. I want you to hear that. This isn't two sides moving together, us doing our part, God doing it, His part. It pleased God through the fullness of God in Jesus Christ, to move towards us, to make peace by the blood of His cross, and to be reconciled with us. You think of that. We're the issue. Our sin is the issue. And yet He moved towards us. He initiated. He took the step to come and fix our broken relationship. Right? That, that's what sets Jesus apart from the others. This is not your climb up to God. This is God has come to you. I want you to hear that. This is not your pursuit of God. Things are off between us and God, between creation and God. Let's, let's work on this. That's not how it happens. One preacher said, Russian astronauts first went up into space. And sort of in their pride and arrogance, they looked around and they said, we were up there and we didn't find God. Sort of the height of human arrogance. We made our climb up and we didn't see him. And yet Paul is saying, your spaceships and your ladders don't matter at all because Christianity is not you building one rung up after another to get to him, but that he was pleased to come to you through the fullness of Jesus Christ, making peace with you by the blood of his cross. Jesus Christ has established the reconciliation of all things. That God, through the shedding of his blood, has put an end to the war. Right? Remember I told you, all things got swept up in this. Our sin, but, but mountains give earthquakes and oceans give tsunamis. The whole thing is messed up. But by His blood, that rebellion all over is going to come to an end. It's going to be done. There will be no more rebellion. The war against the Creator by the creation will be over because Jesus is reconciling to Himself all things. 
whether that be in glad submission now or forced submission later. Right? Philippians tells us, at the name of Jesus, every knee, whether in heaven or in earth or under the earth, will bow. It will bow to its creator. The, war, the, the, the conflict has given way to peace. It's like D-Day, right? The, the, the beginning of the end is here. Jesus is at the top of the driveway. There won't be conflict forever anymore. Peace has been initiated. The only question now is, will you receive and accept and live under that peace? Or will you be forced into that peace? Every enemy of his will bow their knee. The only question is, will you do it willingly now or be forced into submission later? Will you willingly bow to a God who came to you to reconcile through the shedding of his blood? And so Paul says, the scriptures ask, Samarod, who is your God this morning? Who, who has supreme value? What has place of priority in your life? What fills your landscape and is the answer to the question, what's your greatest dream? What's your worst nightmare? And Colossians 1, 15 to 20 is urging us, pleading with us, compelling us to say, there is only one who is head and shoulders above everyone else. Only one who is fit to bear the weight of being your God. And if you haven't heard it yet, hear it now. It's the one who is the image of the invisible God. It's the one who is the firstborn of all creation. It's the one who by whom and through whom and for whom all things were made. It's the one who is the head of his body, the church. It's the one who is the beginning, the firstborn of the dead, who has ushered in not just creation but new creation. It's the one in whom all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. It's the one through whom all things have been reconciled to God, making peace by his blood. That is Jesus Christ and him alone. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you would dethrone every small g God in our life. And that you would smash those gods into a thousand small pieces. And that whatever we are going through in life today, you would give us a vision of Jesus Christ bigger than anything else in our eyesight. That like the sun, in seeing him, we might be able to see better everything. That like the sun at its brightest and highest point in the day, and now every other star, the moon itself becomes invisible, nothing else in the sky can be seen but the sun. So exalt Jesus in our hearts and minds that everything else would be a distant second to him. Help us to see his excellence, his supremacy, his primacy, his preeminence. And help us to see a God that high who has come this near so as to say, I am your head and you are my body, that when you hurt, I hurt, because that's how close I am. A God who has not remained distant, but has come in the person Jesus Christ, in whom all the fullness of God dwells. Oh God, help us to experience both your unbelievable grandness 
and your unbelievable nearness today. You are as close as the shadow by our right hand. Help us to know that and feel that and believe that with every fiber of our being today. Uphold us, O Lord, each and every one, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.